This is the Concealed Carry Podcast, Season 9, Episode 2. And welcome to the Concealed Carry Podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network. Today, or I'm your host, Riley Bowman, and joined today by co-host Jacob Paulson. And I forgot the title sponsor, KSG Armory. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> we, don't, we don't have our producer, so I don't have my script in front of me. <laughs> producer being Matthew Marister. You do, get, you do get accustomed to reading, yeah. Well, you think you got it memorized, too, which generally you kind of do, but... Anyway, welcome to the Concealed Carry Podcast, brought to you by KSG Armory, and I am your host, and Jacob's our co-host, and uh, we're thrilled to be with you all. This is uh, actually Wednesday, July 12th, 2023, as of the recording of this episode, in case you are not catching us live. Today's episode, we're talking about setting up your dry fire dojo, or might also be referred to more generically as your dry fire training or dry fire practice area. Looking forward to this topic. This was featured recently as a topic or whatever in our Shooter Ready Challenge video series. You can find it at ShooterReadyChallenge.com. And today's episode sponsors are LaserApp.com, L-A-S-R-A-P-P.com. And also barrelblock.com. And in case people are, ever get confused, that's barrelblock, B L O K, dot com. And also, a new sponsor of Shooter Ray Challenge is dryfireproshop.com, your one stop shop for all things dry fire related. So, very appropriate for this particular topic. And so, we thank our sponsors and let's get into um, the topic. So, setting up your dry fire dojo. Uh, Jacob wanted to do this as a topic, or as a, I guess, topic, yeah, of the Shooter Ray Challenge. Um, to, you know, typically Shooter Ray Challenge is setting up a drill or something dry fire practice related. And, and then we do it and show you how to do it. Maybe show you different ways of doing it and show you how to do it with you know, this equipment or that equipment or this tool or that tool. Uh, but we never actually showed people like, hey, here's how you set up a productive, efficient, and most importantly, safe dry fire practice area. So good topic. And I know it's something that Jacob's passionate about and also something that Jacob's written about. So where do you want to start? Well, let's talk about, um, you know, how do you identify a place maybe in your home that it would be appropriate to set up your dry fire stuff? Or another place we could start is why is it important that there be some consistency in always conducting your dry fire in the same place? <clears throat> maybe that's the better spot of those two. So I, I think consistency matters. Um, as you know, we have a series of what we call them when dry fire isn't dry news stories or stories that uh, we've collected over time from, from people we know or others uh, in which they've experienced a negligent discharge when conducting dry fire. And there's a lot of patterns that seem to emerge from those. Uh, in fact, I recently reread 300 ND stories from a study we did a few years ago, and there are, there are some key patterns that emerge. But one of them, when we look at NDs that come from dry fire specifically, 
a common pattern is that people are not conducting dry fire in the place they normally do. So they're trying to kind of squeeze out some dry fire reps quickly, you know, kind of ad hoc. And so they're not entering into um, the place where they would normally do it. You know, we, we got a buddy, I shouldn't say a buddy, uh, someone I'm, I'm uh, familiar with who had a negligent discharge in his kitchen. He doesn't normally conduct his dry fire in his kitchen, but that particular day he was waiting for somebody. They were, they were about to leave the house and, and uh, the person was taking a while. So he's like, ah, oh, while I'm waiting, I'll get into some dry fire reps. So he starts to conduct some dry fire in the in the uh, kitchen and shoots his refrigerator, right? Um, a similar one at a gun range where a guy was in his office in the back room of the gun range and decided to just do some quick dry fire and cooks off around through the sidewall into the shooting area. So consistency of location is important because it allows us to create not only some systems relative to safety, uh, but also allows us to build routines and habits um, that that cause us to be more safe. Yeah. You know, I can certainly understand and appreciate that somebody is, you know, like, Hey, you know, I've got a few minutes and I'm, I mean, I'm in a safe place to do so. Um, but maybe not my normal place. And you're like, Hey, let's get in some dry fire practice because practice is good. And uh, you got, I, it's good. It's good to take advantage of, opportunities when they present themselves but there's definitely some truth to what you're speaking about with respect to having uh, some kind of consistency and that really is the basis of the um, the basis of having a dry fire dojo an actual dojo where uh, you do it always in the same spot same location same way same place uh, and so yeah um Definitely some some truth there. Now, can that be balanced with taking advantage of opportunities to practice when an opportunity presents itself? I, I think so, um, but I think those are exceptions and that you have to take extra layers or extra levels of care if you're going to do that. So, uh, But the best practice is let's create a training area within our home or our office or wherever it is that we typically, it could be your garage, I suppose, wherever it is you typically do your dry fire practice. And let's make that the dojo so that, you know, like in the, in the, uh, in, in the same way that you have say a martial arts dojo. And a lot of times those come with different uh, rules associated, right? You know, like you enter my dojo Here's the rules you're going to follow, right? You're going to remove your shoes when you come into the dojo. You're going to, you know, whatever, come up with whatever rules your particular martial arts school has and your students enter the dojo and they're going to abide by the rules because they're there to learn to train. And uh, part of that is making sure that even in martial arts that, you know, things are done safely and also well, respectfully, you know, as you're working with instructors and whatnot, but we can create within our own homes and, other uh, locations, wherever that might be for you, a dojo where you enter the dojo, you follow by a set strict group of rules or procedures so that you are enhancing your safety as you're performing dry fire practice. Because we know that a significant uh, 
you know, amount or number of negligent discharges that occur, occur from people doing dry fire practice. Uh, I've posted several times in our little internal company chat, uh, you know, little screenshots from Facebook groups. It comes up, you know, probably once a month, it seems sometimes where guys like, oh, I was doing some dry fire and whoopsie, got a, got a hole in the wall, you know. Yeah, yeah there was one last week. And yeah, we yeah, kind of laugh about it, but it's not, but it's it's a serious matter for sure. Yeah, yeah. Last week there was a new story. A guy was at home, had a brand new holster and he was getting some reps in, you know, testing his new holster, put a, put a round through his leg. So, yeah, now I, I'll add that this, the dojo thing, I think that there are, it's okay for there to be exceptions. I think that we primarily want to create a training area that is this dojo. But but I also think it's important to conduct dry fire uh, in environments where we're, that we can't do it at, at a range. For example, I'll, I'll just you know, throw an example, like going up and down stairs, right? Like in your home, you might have stairs. Well, you, you might in a realist, you know, real life scenario, you might have to manage a gun while going up and down stairs. And so creating a dojo in some room or corner of the house is not something that, you know, that allows you to practice some of those things that are advantageous to practice at home that you can't practice at a gun range even with live ammo. So I think that you can create rules for, hey, you know, I'm going to set up this dojo for the majority of my training because there I'm going to have the right gear. I'm going to have practices and procedures, et cetera. Um, outside of that dojo, I, you know, I might still conduct dry fire sometimes, but there's going to be these other rules. And maybe I have to pass through the dojo before I go into the rest of the house. Or I, I don't know. You you can create rules. We'll talk about some of those things, I suppose. And we've discussed them in past episodes. But I think the key is that there's rules, there's consistency, there's habits, there's routines, um, and that, that uh, you know, we, we abide by them. But, but yeah, certainly the topic of this episode is, you know, setting up that, that one spot. So, uh, first things first, I think, with respect to that, I mean, you talked about uh, establishing an area. Um, What are some considerations that a person might take into account for where would be the best or better places within a home, let's say, since that's probably the more likely context that most uh, folks find themselves in for dry fire practice? what would be some considerations for, for identifying that location, Jacob? I think there's a couple of things uh, that come to my mind. One is that ideally it's a place you can put targets on the wall and not have to take them down. It's just a convenience factor. If I don't have to put up targets, take down targets, put up targets, take down targets, if I can leave them up all the time, that's really nice. So that's probably, especially if you're a married guy like me, there's going to be some places you probably are not allowed to just leave targets up on the wall all the time. As you can see, if you're watching the video, I got some targets behind me right now on the wall. Uh, and I'm allowed to leave those there. This is my my little home office. I can conduct dry fire in this room. So I think I think that's one consideration. This is a weird like Jacob thing. No one else probably cares, but I'd like the idea of passing through a doorway. I like the idea that hey, this is a room, a fit, you know, a room with a door that I walk into, and this is not a place that I hang out in all the time. Um, you know, this is not a room that I just you know inherently am, I'm here all the time. It's it's more like it's maybe it's a storage space or an unused space or space that you primarily only go into to conduct dry fire so that it's not getting confused with other uses or things. You know, it's, it's like, Hey, when I come into this room, I don't have to ask myself, well, I'm just going in to grab that thing. So I'll just keep my gun on. It's like, no, I primarily, yeah, that might happen. But primarily when I come into this room, 
Uh, it's for the purpose of conducting dry fire. It's not a place I hang out. Because if it's a hangout place, let's say it's your family room, for example, well, that's a place you should be carrying concealed. That's a place where you should be armed. If some sort of incident takes place at the home, and man, we got plenty of those stories to back up, back up this one, right? Then you, you know, you, we we believe you should be armed. We believe that carrying concealed is not an out of the home thing. It's an all the day, all the time thing. And so, if if your same place you hang out is also a place you conduct dry fire, then it, it I think it complicates the idea of creating a safe space uh, for conducting dry fire. I certainly. I mean, I, I think it makes a lot of sense to say, hey, this is the entrance into my dry fire practice area. Uh, I am crossing this threshold, and there are certain things that I do once I cross that threshold or within that space and certain things that I do not. Um, and so making that clearly delineated certainly uh, has its uh, advantages, especially from a, a safety and a consistency perspective. Um Although obviously we recognize that not everybody uh, with their, you know, own individual home setup may not be able to create their dry fire dojo in a separate room with a door and a threshold and all of that. Um, so the point here is, I mean, that that's one way of doing it. You can certainly, you know, take an office or a particular bedroom or um, whatever it is and say, this is, this is the dry fire dojo and you create or establish those procedures and rules for that. Or if you don't have a separate standalone room where that's possible to do, then you can, you know, designate a certain area or a part of a room. Most of my dry fire practice is done in my basement, which is finished. Um, but we don't actually have any bedrooms downstairs. In the, well, we, we have a guest room in the basement, so it's rarely occupied. And I have a home office in the basement. Uh, the, you know, so the nice thing about that is I am below ground, below grade. Um, so I've got ample safe directions that I, you know, can have uh, from a, well, number one, safety, you know, rules per, uh perspective, but just as having a, a fallback in case something were to happen, an accident were to be made somehow. Um, and I primarily I use the uh, our family room that we have down there. It's a pretty big room. Uh, it's fairly long, actually, in dimension, not so much wide, um, but uh, that actually affords me some flexibility in terms of what I can set up and what I can do. And I can kind of do things in a 360 degree fashion, as long as there's no one else downstairs there with me, or I need to be concerned about, you know, not muzzling a family member, let's say. Um, the one thing I do have to be careful about is not orienting my muzzle upward uh, for again, additional layers of safety. And I don't want to have that muzzle direction, uh, unnecessarily go upward where the rest of my family is likely, uh, you know, present if I, when I'm, and I typically am doing my dry fire later at night when kids are usually in bed, um, anyway, and they are typically going to be right, right about right above where I am, uh, conducting my practice. Um, but essentially when I enter my dojo, it's by crossing, it's basically going down the stairs into, um, the basement area. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's the dojo, you know, and there's, uh, what I want to, before we get into kind of some specific safety rules, let's say, which is an important aspect to consider. Uh, I do want to just 
make mention while we're discussing this topic that in giving some thought uh, uh, to where your specific dry fire practice area is, uh, whether that's a separate room or whether that is uh, delineating some kind of area or part of a room, uh, if you wanted to get real technical with it, you could take some some blue tape or masking tape or something and actually create an outline on the floor and say, this is the dry fire practice area. And that means only within that area will I have, or not within that area, or what am I trying to say? I will not have live ammo, for instance, within that area, right? Um, Within that area, I will only have unloaded firearms. That's, I think, what I was trying to uh, communicate. And, uh, And so that's, that's, that's one approach. But before I hand it back to you and we move on, uh, to other considerations, I was just going to make mention that I kind of dropped a hint in me describing my own dry fire dojo, which was that I like the fact that it's in my basement. And at some point, 360 degrees around me, I have a concrete barrier and beyond that earth, like there is no, no penetration of bullets um, that is going to leave the perimeter of my home. And I, I'm, I'm fortunate to have that setup. Uh, not everybody is able to have a setup like that. Not, not everyone has a basement. Not everybody lives in a place where you can have a basement. Some of you may live in an apartment or some other more high density or medium density housing of some sort. And so that may uh, make it a little more difficult for you, but I still think that it's wise to evaluate your own floor plan, the construction of your home, uh, the you know what's what's on the other side of walls and things, and what what is my best safe direction for primarily you know keeping my guns oriented and conducting myself in dry practice. What is the least likely direction in which if something were to occur that somebody might get harmed as a result of that. So those are wise things I think to consider and then plan accordingly as to how you set up your, your, your dojo. Yeah. I'm glad you talked about safe direction because I, I just you know, brain farted on that. I think that's a good, good comment and really important. And again, I, I think that if you, if, if this sounds like something you can't do in your home then you, you, you do the best you can, maybe, uh, it's a temporary, maybe you set up a dojo, you know, temporarily and you have to take it down because it's in the middle of your, living room or bedroom or something, that's fine. I think more important are the routines associated and the rules associated with it than necessarily where it is or if it's permanent. But but there's ideal and then there's sort of, you know, how you do your best uh, mm-hmm. and figure it out. Yeah, I, I just think where it makes, where it's possible, uh, where possible, it makes sense to have additional redundancies built into um, your yep. setup. Yep, yep, yep. So, because mistakes do happen, even to those of us that are well experienced. We know that. We certainly have seen evidence of that and perhaps know people that have um, no excuse at making mistakes, but in fact do because we're human and we do such things. So what are what would be some – actually, before we get too far along here, a uh, little sponsor spot here uh, just to feature more specifically our first sponsor of today's episode is laserapp.com that is the laser activated shot reporter software that we're big fans of and have been using for a number of years now and we feature the laser x version of the software 
typically each month in the Shooter Ready Challenge video that we films that we that we film on shooterreadychallenge.com. And so head on over to lasrapp.com and check out the software. I think it's, I mean, you'll see that, I mean, there's a cost associated. I think it's a reasonable one when you consider what you can get out of it and the flexibility and the, also the, the power, like it, it's a, it's a very powerful software with a lot of features. It's a really, really cool thing to, to have as a, an option for you in your dry practice. It keeps certainly keeps things interesting, allows me to try a bunch of different things and most importantly, actually collect data on hits and associated times with those hits that is hard to do any other way in dry practice. So check out laserapp.com today. We appreciate their sponsor uh, sponsorship of the podcast. So Jacob, what are some of the other kind of safety guidelines, safety rules and or procedures that you know, when we enter the dojo, what are what are the things we should be doing to ensure we conduct ourselves safely? I think the, the biggest key here is is about ammunition. You know, because depending on the kind of dry fire you're going to conduct, you might need slash want your actual gun, right? So we can't say no live guns in the dojo or in the training area, uh, but we can say no live ammo. And so that that's you know that threshold that you've established, whatever it is. Uh, I think that the most common best practice, I'll give an alternative idea of it. The most common best practice is remove, strip, you know, unload, clear all live ammo and don't let it cross the threshold. And so depending on, you know, your lifestyle and situation, that might need mean you even need a little gun safe uh, right there near the threshold, something that you can lock the gun up in, which is what you did in the Shoot Ready Challenge when you filmed it. Um, I think there's other options as well. Uh, potentially, I'm going to take my gun into the into the dojo, and that's fine. So maybe I just got a little shelf or a drawer, or a whatever, you know, end table where I you know, take my live, my full mag and I put the mag there. I clear the chamber, put the, the round there, maybe in that same place, wherever that place is at the threshold. Maybe that's also where I'm retrieving a barrel block or something else that I'm going to insert into the gun. Uh, if that's available to you, we'll talk about some of those other things, I'm sure. But the key is clear guns, no, no live ammo. So in the training area, I'm not taking in any ammunition. Potentially, depending on my economic situation, I could have dedicated mags for dry dry fire, so I don't have to even worry about you know dumping a mag, uh, removing all the rounds, and, and having an empty mag to take in with me. Maybe I can just remove my mag and just set it down. And when I get into the dojo, I'm going to have some empty mags, uh, or at least one or two waiting for me. Uh, but if, if I am going to clear and, and take in my gun and or mag, but I do think having mag block and barrel block right there is the way to go because unloaded is good and unloaded is important, but inert is, is best. Uh, inert means gun is incapable of firing, right? So inert means I barrel blocked it, uh, put mag blocks in the mags, or it means I'm using a cert pistol, or it means that I'm using a cool fire trainer with an aftermarket, you know, uh, a barrel that's installed that we know that's visual that I can see and know is not going to fire. Um, it means I've done something that renders the gun incapable of loading and or firing around. So that's that's the key. Here. That's the big one. I'll give you one alter, alternate. Um, I, I certainly know some people. In fact, I think you might have been the first one to tell me you knew someone who did this, and I've heard it a few times since. But I know some people who they don't like the idea of leaving the ammo outside of the dry fire dojo uh, necessarily. What they like is having a place they can set it, they can see it. So maybe it's just on the outside of the, the tape you know, line on the floor. But if it's a dedicated room they're going into, maybe they have a specific corner of that room 
where they put the live animal. They, some people, you know, I think I think the, the concept here is that I want at any given time I'm conducting my dry fire, I want to be able to look and see, oh, yep, there's my ammo. It's right there. I can see it. So I know that it's not my gun. I know it's not, you know, that's not the mag I'm using because I set them down over there in that consistent same spot every time. So that might be something a person might prefer. Um, if you're just, you know, chalking out an outline in your living room, then you could do both. You could say, hey, when I cross in over this line, I'm not taking any live ammo. In fact, I'm going to always leave it over here in this one spot so that while I'm in the training area, I can always look over and verify, yep, there's my live ammo. But I would encourage, you know, I think for me, like, there's a good, better, best here. And I think the best policy is I don't just clear and unload the gun to make sure no live ammo crosses the threshold. I also render the gun inert or I take an inert, you know, or I, or I go in to use an inert gun that I keep there. Yep. I think that is, uh, I mean, I think it's the best way to go. And we, we have the barrel blocks. Of course we sell barrel blocks. Uh, and there's a reason that product exists because, it is the way that you can easily and reversibly make a live firearm essentially inert for purposes of dry practice. Yeah. Without and disassembly so either. Makes a lot Not of sense. Take it apart, right? So it's a yep. quick thing. Lock yep. slide back, slide this in, release slide forward, done. Um, that further yeah. enhances safety because you're not having to disassemble the gun. And some guns require press of a trigger before you can disassemble right. it. Yeah, absolutely. I render render gun inert. Like that's that's the way I feel about it. And there's some, you know, I think barrel block has some non-safety related advantages too, relative to potentially limiting damage to the firing pin. And the mag blocks obviously allow for some uh, specific type of training that you might otherwise not be able to do. So we can talk about that later, I suppose, if if we need to or want to. But for for fifteen bucks, right, for fourteen ninety nine, a person can have extreme, absolute, and visually confirmable confidence. The guns in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So using the barrel block is is probably my default uh, solution for conducting dry practice uh, much of the time because you know because of the safety advantages that it comes with. I mean, in that way, even at a glance, even at you know as I pull the gun out of the, out of the holster while I've been you know using it or whatever, I can always just check if for some reason I. I mean, maybe, maybe uh, I don't know, maybe I, as much as I'd like to say that we should try to avoid uh, distractions during dry practice, which I think is wise. Um, the fact is, you know, life is life and I'm a father and a husband and, you know, in my world, distractions are always going to exist. And so maybe I step away for a minute uh, and come back and go, wait, hold on, let's just double check things. Well, I can quickly look at my gun and go barrel block is in it. I can see it before I even open the slide. I can check and see that it's coming out of the muzzle. I can check the chamber as well and, and visually verify it that way too. So a lot of advantages that way. There are times and places where I'm going to do dry practice that is not where, where barrel block is not the right tool. Uh, for instance, maybe I want to do, uh, maybe I want to practice unloaded starts which that terminology is a USPSA uh, competition thing, right? Where you start a stage with an unloaded gun, then you got to load it. So an unloaded start. And, you know, so maybe I want to practice, set that up and practice that because I have a match coming up and that is something that may be featured in that match. Well, that is going to involve me needing to have an available chamber in my gun. So barrel block would, would prevent that from being possible. And then I'm going to need a mag with dummy rounds in it. 
well, then we, we should at least have the consideration that there's other safety considerations that I should have in place or procedures that, okay, when I'm doing this dry practice now where I'm practicing, you know, with dummy rounds, I need to check individually each of those dummy rounds and make sure that everything that I'm working with is in fact only a dummy round. And two, that that's, you know, checking my magazine. That is all that I put in that magazine was dummy rounds. And then three, just ensuring that the gun, in fact, before I begin is loaded, that I have an empty chamber and that I know where my, my live ammo is located and that it's accounted for and things of that nature. So uh, another, another situation would be where you want to use something like a, a ready up gear laser dot trainer. And that's the little laser emitter that you insert into the chamber very much like a, a live round would be inserted. Uh, it does not have a rim on it so that you, when you work the slide, you're not extracting it out each time. It has some O-rings that keeps it locked in place in the chamber. Uh, and so that way, when I'm working with the laser dot trainer, I, again, have to follow very similar safety procedures like I would with, say, dummy rounds, where I need to make sure that first I'm starting with an unloaded gun. I know where my live ammo is, that it's accounted for, or that it's safely stored away. And also, it's good to make sure that when you're using something like those laser cartridge inserts, that, you know, they got the O-rings, and sometimes over time, those O-rings dry out, or they get worn, and they may not start retaining in the chamber as well. Well, if I'm intentionally practicing with a laser uh, trainer like that, I want to ensure that when I'm when I've inserted it in the chamber, I want it to stay in the chamber. So you got to be you know kind of stay up to to snuff, if you will, with respect to maintenance of that laser dot trainer, so that hey, this is in the chamber now. I don't have a barrel block. I've got a, I've got the laser dot trainer instead, and that's my accountability at that point. That one, I know that's in there. I've I've checked. I'm I'm again. I'm careful not to have any live ammo. Um, anywhere near where I'm practicing, and I want that laser dot trainer to stay in there um, so that, you know, we're not ending up with an unnecessarily open chamber. So mm-hmm. point, again, being is that sometimes there's a time and place for conducting other dry practice where a barrel block wouldn't really be feasible. Uh, and so, you know, you want to make sure you're you're thinking of those situations as well and having procedures in place that allow you to conduct that safely as mm-hmm. well. The final situation I'll just mention, I'm sure you have other comments, Jacob, is uh, that you've seen me perhaps if you've followed any, for any amount of time or seen shooter rate challenge videos, uh, sometimes I use the cool fire trainer. And that would be another example of taking a live firearm and essentially making it inert uh, in that the whole barrel is replaced. And I mean, it's not, it's, it's not even possible for a round to be chambered, yet alone fired. It's its own standalone dry fire system. Yeah. I, I, you know, the thought that came to my mind, I never thought about it this way before until just now as you were talking, but I, I think it's my opinion that it's a good habit to build. Um, and and I, I teach this that every time I put a holster, because every time I put a gun in a holster, I do a function check on that gun. A function check maybe is even the wrong word. I'm not like checking, you know, the internals. Uh, what I'm really doing is is making sure it's staged properly. So I remove mag, check how many rounds are in the mag. I'm, not, I'm talking about live fire right now, to be clear. Just I'm, I'm, I'm circling back to dry fire in a moment. 
But I'm dropping the mag. I'm checking to see how many rounds are in the mag. I'm pushing down on the top round, maybe testing the spring of the mag, making sure it's nice and stiff. I'm inserting the mag into the gun. I'm giving a little tug on the base plate, making sure it's fully seated. I'm doing a press check, right, pulling the slide slightly to the rear so I can see into the chamber and verify that I have a round in the chamber. Um, and then I tap on the back of the slide to make sure my slide goes all the way back forward into battery. And then I go ahead and holster the gun. It, it takes much less time that, to do it than it does to describe it. Uh, and, and, you know, if I'm, in a, if I'm in a class, for example, maybe, you know, I'm hoping to take one of your classes here uh, in a month or something, you know, I will do that every time. Like I might do that full process 30 times in a day, 50 times in a day. It's not a big deal. It doesn't take that long. I do it at least once a morning every time I, I get dressed and I holster up, right? So I just want to point out that in dry fire, I can do a similar thing that, that creates a similar good habit. Right. So every, you know, not just, you know, initially when I first get in, I can, I can do that same check, right? Like, okay, I'm going to remove mag, check, check, no live ammo, got my mag block in there. Maybe depending on what I'm doing, that might be helpful um, or dummy round or, or whatever it is, you know, insert mag, pull a tug on base plate, pull slide back and check chamber. Yep. There's my barrel blocker. If I'm using some sort of laser cartridge ammo thingamajigger, like the laser dot, then, oh, yep, there it is. There's that shiny brass. I see that's what's in there. Uh, good to go, release slide, tap slide forward, holster up. And when I complete complete the next exercise, I can repeat. I could do it again. And I my, my point is that, that that cycle of checks, um, which I think is extremely important in real, normal, everyday, non-dry fire situations, just daily consult carry readiness, and when I'm conducting training or practice on the range, also applies to dry fire. And I never thought about it that way, but I do – I think that's something you can you can do in both situations. Just I'm checking every cycle. Yeah, I I put that in the category of what we um, call our first firearm safety rule at concealedcarry.com, which is know the condition of your firearm and always treat it as a potentially yeah. dangerous tool. And that first part is super key. Like I should always know what the condition of my firearm is. If I want it loaded, I need to know it's loaded. If I want to unload it, I need to know that. I don't want to end up in a situation where I make an assumption about what the condition is and get it wrong. And when in doubt, just check. It's not hard to do. It takes very little time. It costs you nothing to check. And always good to have that reassurance, the peace of mind of, I know, in fact, what the condition of my firearm is. And some of my desire to word or phrase a rule like that uh, actually came from a time when, I mean, I've been a pretty religious uh, dry fire practitioner for a number of years now. I mean, I typically spend some amount of time with a gun in my hand pretty much every day. It might only be for a few minutes. It might be for a half hour. Uh, but I typically touch and spend some time with my gun every day. That's how I've gotten to be fairly good. That's just a thing. It's funny how that works. You practice and do it consistently. You get good at something. Uh, there was one time, though, you know, in a lot of time. I mean, sometimes I'm dry firing with guns that aren't necessarily daily carry guns. Uh, but sometimes I'm doing some dry fire with my daily carry. One time I unloaded following procedure, you know, did, did everything properly, safely to conduct some dry practice at home. Went about, you know, my dry fire practice session, got done, and was going to, you know, reload my gun. 
And I, I mean, I inserted the loaded mag, but I never did chamber around. And I didn't discover that until like 24 hours later, dang near. When it was like, basically I went to do, I think my next drive practice session when I went to unload it was like, uh, around should have come out of that just now. <laughs> what, what you mean to tell me for the last day, I've now carried a gun. I thought was loaded, thought was chambered, thought was ready for use. And in fact was not. So I did not know the condition of my firearm. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, that's a mistake that that's all on me, but we make mistakes. Mm-hmm. That's, and that's a simple thing, you know, uh, you know, in a moment of, I don't know what happened. I, I still to this day can't, under, I can't explain why I failed to reload my gun fully, but clearly I did. And guess where I found my, my uh, unloaded round, the, the one that was, had been in the chamber. It, it was still sitting right where I yeah. had unloaded. And like, I, it was as if I just, I grabbed the magazine, stuck it in the gun and put it in the holster, went about my business. And the round was just sitting there a day later. So, you know, that was, uh, that was a wake-up call because had that been the day I needed to use my gun, it would not have gone bang when I thought it would, you know? And that, I mean, clearly, okay, tap rack and get back into the fight, but that's not ideal. <laughs> so know the condition of your firearm. And if you're in doubt about that ever, check it. And even if you're not necessarily in doubt, like I do a little check, like you, Jacob, I think this is a... Uh, something that I've done as well for many years now before I put my holster on my gun on for the day and go about my business, quick little function check. Yeah. All right. Mag out. Mag looks good. Rounds in chamber. Great. Guns and battery guns in proper working order. I'm running an optic most of the time these days. Okay. Optic still functioning. Yep. Optic looks good. When's the last time I changed out the battery? Oh, that was six months ago. Okay. Maybe it's about time I consider changing the battery. You know, like what it, like it's that daily check of making sure my equipment's operational. Oh, is this starting to get a little bit dirty? Am I getting a lot of lint trapped in, in the, the firearm, uh, you know, the fire control components, uh, oh, maybe time to, you know, clean that kind of stuff, right? Like every day, a quick little look over and function check of my gun. You know, I was noticed, I was thinking about this a little bit the other day when I saw someone post online, uh, they were complaining about a particular firearm manufacturer and, ah, oh, I just don't make them like they used to. And they're obviously using cheap, uh, uh, you know, finish, like the, the finish on the firearm is not as good as, you know, they used to do it or whatever, because he was complaining about how his gun uh, was covered in rust. And I was like, that's interesting, you know, because it, it was apparent just looking at it that it had been it had been in a holster and stayed in a holster for days and days, maybe weeks and weeks. And that during that period of time, uh, condensation had occurred within the holster as it's against his body and it rusted the gun and he's blaming the fire manufacturer. And I'm like, I'd put some of that blame on you, buddy. I mean, they might not be making as good as they used to. I don't know, but that tells me you weren't even looking at your gun every day. That was just coming off your belt into the safe, out of the safe, back into the belt, back and forth, back and forth, never actually checking the gun that's inside the holster. So anyway, I, I just never thought of it. You know, I never thought there. of it before as a skill to translate it from dry fire to live fire. Uh, you know, a skill maybe yeah. the wrong word, a practice, a routine. 
Uh, I never thought of it that way, but it really is. It's the same thing I'm doing in both yeah. circumstances. I'm just looking for a couple of different things. Um, so good stuff. Yeah. Let's talk about um, – I'm going to make a stick of a hard right here, right? Let's talk about targets sure. and size and distance. Um, well, before we do sure. that, let me let me interrupt by just making sure that we recognize our episode sponsors properly and so our other – our second sponsor is Barrel Block. We spent some time already talking about Barrel Block, so no need for any further introduction there. But uh, it is the industry-leading dry fire safety product, I believe. Uh, and so check them out. Not very expensive, and it's absolutely worth its weight in gold uh, from a safety perspective and affords you a lot of flexibility what you could do with your firearm. And if you're one of those that lives in a higher-density residential area or complex you absolutely should have and, and should utilize a barrel block for that uh, additional layer of safety. of Because maybe you don't have a true safe wall that you can use uh, to, you know, as a safe direction while you're working with a live fire. But you put a barrel block in it, make it inert. And at that point, it's it's really not any different than a cert pistol. So check it out, barrelblock.com. All right, your pivot. Yep, targets. Targets. So there's lots of different styles of targets. I don't know that that has a lot of relevancy here other than there might be specific things you're training for or there might be, um, you know, if you're a competitive shooter, then there might be certain types of targets you want to work with because they're com- comparable to what you're going to see in competition. I think there's a lot of options as a short answer. So uh, we have a bunch of targets that people can download and use for dry fire, right, Riley? You, you put most of those together. Yeah. Yeah. Uh you know, and that idea came up, uh, it's been a couple of years ago now, and we've made some updates here and there. Uh, most recently, just like a month or so ago, we added um, a couple of targets that had what we call hardcover on them. So uh, essentially, they're similar to USPSA uh, targets, uh, but uh, certain parts of those target areas are not... Uh, you know, they don't, they, they're, they're not hit areas. They're not hit zones. And so uh may not be relevant for everybody, but it could also be, I mean, even like what's great about the USPSA target, by the way, is it is humanoid in shape. So at least it somewhat represents a human silhouette. And I don't think that's a bad thing at all. And so, um, you know, I like using USPSA targets for pretty much everything these days, to be honest with you. I mean, sometimes I mix in a few different things, but I think the USPSA target's pretty generic and readily available and easy to use and works for my competition context, but I think is perfectly applicable for defensive context. But even uh, these targets with the hardcover zones on them, uh, in fact, I'm going to pull up on my screen for those that are viewing uh, the video with us here today. So you can see, you know, here's, here's what I'm talking about. So uh, these ones right here are these black areas. So some of it's covering the left side, the right side, or maybe you're just getting a little sliver of, you know, of the target. Uh, We call that a, a a tuxedo target and uh, you know, one that's covering the lower zone. So these could be very much representational of, a threat target that is partially obscured by a wall, a column, some other kind of cover uh, or concealment. But as I scroll up on the page here, you see, you know, it started with just some uh, simple shapes, rectangles and squares and circles. And some of these were things I came up with and some were, were actually 
you know, they're actually inspired by specific drills that are known in the industry. And you can just download and print and use these to your heart's content. If even if you just want a simple A zone printed out on an eight and a half by 11 piece of paper, uh, there's one of those available. Uh, so, you know, easy to print these off. These other USPSA and IPSC style targets, uh, they are intended to be printed on eight and a half by 11 piece of paper. That's really the, the case with all of these, but these USPSA and IPSC targets, and there's even an IDPA target. These are intended to be at one third scale. So, so let's talk briefly so you print about them, one third scale and what, why that matters. Yep. So yeah, yeah. one third scale, what you're, what you mean is that if the target were normally 21 inches tall. When you print it on this eight and a half by 11 inch paper, it's going to be seven inches tall. It's a very literal, like it's one third the normal size, like shrunk down. Um, but this is relevant because we you can make you can adjust for that by choosing your distance from the target, right? So if normally uh, I would shoot at the full size target at uh, uh, whatever 21 21 feet, then if I seven, seven yards, yards, then if I scale it down to one third size by printing it off on my home printer, then I can cut the distance by third and get a similar challenge or similar experience. It's, it's, it's the equivalent, same thing. Mm-hmm. So I can work at three yards. Mm-hmm. Or yeah, two and a half or when you're talking about this, talk about it in, talking about, talk about it in feet and yards because whatever the target, it, when you're using a one third scale target, if you typically shoot that target at seven yards, 10 yards, 25 yards, then you set that up, that one-third scale target, at seven feet or 10 feet or 25 feet, and it will have the same relative size as it appears to your eye as that. So whatever that distance is in feet, that number, seven feet equals seven yards when you're using one-third scale target. That's the beautiful thing about one-third scale target is because you can translate. And, and You can translate it to something that you typically do at the range, but it's scaled down to an appropriate thing that fits in most people's home dimensions, like seven feet, right? Seven yards is a common distance or even five feet or five yards. Uh, Hey, we, you know, we all can probably find five or seven feet, perhaps 10 feet pretty easily within most of our American homes. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Um, Something that I saw you do and I'm sure others, uh, you know, I don't think you probably invented the idea, but, but like well, play, in your dojo, you'll, you have tape on the ground to kind of mark out some of those distances uh, so that you don't have to redo that every time. Or a person maybe doesn't even have to put tape on the ground. Maybe they can mark it with some landmarks on the wall or with furniture or something, but kind of having some preconceived notion of, okay, I got my one third scale targets up on the wall. Uh, here's my, you know, my, my three feet, my set, my five feet, my seven feet, my 10 feet uh, marks or whatever they are so that I know that I'm kind of, you know, the equivalent of when I go to to verify and and improve my you know, do practice in live fire, I know kind of what I've what I've been working at. Yeah, yeah, and that's that is something I've done for a long time in my basement dry fire dojo. Uh, I've got a number of little pieces of tape, uh, just masking tape, and you know it doesn't harm the carpet, and it just marks off some uh, uh, some distances in the home dojo there. And also I've got some other pieces uh, that uh, represent like shooting areas uh, that are more, you know, that translate a little bit more to uh, competition preparation that I do. Uh, so I've got, 
you know, these little kind of mini courses of fire that I can run uh, within the confines. I mean, I've got, again, I've got a little bit of room to work with in the, in the basement there. And so I've got like little lines here or there that sort of like represent like, you know, I'll start here on the other side of this piece of tape and I'm going to shoot these three targets and then run over to this other piece of tape on the other side of it as if I'm step, stepping into a shooting area and then engage those next set of targets or whatever. Um, so yeah, little, you know, any of that little stuff, it's easy to do. Uh, blue tape's great. You know, the painter's tape, uh, cause it pretty much, you know, doesn't hurt anything. Uh, masking tape can sometimes be a little bit too sticky and leave some residue. Um, you can pick up a roll of blue tape and, uh, I even, I, I, the blue tape's very useful because I'll use it to actually put on the back of my targets that I put on the walls. It doesn't damage the walls and I can peel those off when I'm done or move them in different places. And then I can use that same tape to mark out some, you know, lines or distances or shooting areas on the floor. Mm -hmm. I just realized, I don't think we said it out loud, but, uh, the targets that we're mentioning that you can download and print on your own computer, you can get those at concealedcarry.com forward slash print targets. They're free. They're just PDF files. You just download them, print them at your convenience. Yeah, that was super important to us. It was create a resource that's helpful to the community. Uh, make it free. And if you want to thank us, uh, well, you know, you can shop on our website. <laughs> Speaking of shop, I, I guess I'll take the opportunity since I just set it up and it's a perfect segue. Uh, our other, our third sponsor of today's episode is dryfireproshop.com. This is a relatively uh, new site and it's everything on this is dry fire related. So it's a one-stop shop. You can see already there's a bunch of things added into the store and hopefully more things coming soon. So dryfireproshop.com. Hope that you'll check that out for uh, your future dry fire product needs. So um, let's, uh, I, you know, we're kind of, we're about 50 minutes in and, we could start getting close to wrapping this up, this discussion here today about setting up your dry fire dojo. Uh, we talked about targets. We talked about safety. We talked about some procedure related stuff. Um, I'm going to sp- talk just a little bit about a couple of things I found to be really beneficial for me. Uh, and what that is, is I typically have a gun belt and holster uh, that is, that is just sitting basically there in my dry fire dojo area that's ready to go pretty much whenever. Uh, and, and while that belt setup has Velcro on it to where, you know, typically I'd use it with an inner belt and then put this outer belt over that. Uh, and you know, with that interlocking, uh, hook and loop for security purposes, when I'm actually competing or using it on the, on the range, a lot of times I just put that, that gun belt on over top of my, my regular belt or over top my shirt even. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it typically stays put well enough for the practice that I'm doing and just having that belt there and ready for use is not only a reminder to me to do dry practice, but also kind of that encouragement of, Oh, it's, that's already there. All I gotta do is pull, you know, my P320 out of the safe or whatever. And, you know, in a moment's notice, I can be up and running and doing dry fire practice. Uh, so that's, that's something I found, you know, pretty useful. Um, 
And, and actually, I noticed uh, that about uh, my friend, Matt Little. He has a whole room dedicated to dry practice. And he's got uh, hooks with multiple gun belts because they each have different, I think, different holsters on them. So that, you know, hey, if, if he's working with this gun, he, he just grabs that belt and it has that holster on it already. Um, I don't quite have that many extra belts and holsters laying around. Uh, but uh, I thought that was pretty cool to just see how he had his his little dojo set up and how he had everything just just basically hanging right there. It's basically like a, a gym, a, a training gym, but it's dry fire focused. One thing that I also have in my dojo in my basement there is I have a, I have a TV, and uh, Matt has this as well in his dojo. And late, you know, more recently, there's been a couple of YouTube channels. Uh, that are actually really kind of cool. Um, there's one called Dry Fire King. Uh, they have a subscription-based model. And I think they have some free stuff available as well. Um, and there's, um, I can't remember the exact channel name, but there's a couple out there. And uh, granted, they tend to be a bit more competition-focused, but they actually kind of, what they are is uh, uh, rendered, you know, videos of, like like uh, like a video game, if you will. It's it's just graphics of targets, uh, and it includes moving targets. And that's one thing that's hard to set up sometimes in a dry fire setting, is to have the ability to track and follow targets and shoot moving targets. And so I don't use it hardly, probably more than I don't know once or twice a month. It seems like sometimes, but sometimes I like to just hey, I've got my TV here. I'll pull up a YouTube channel on there load those videos and do some dry practice for that particular session, just using those, those little videos uh, to be my, my targets. And that's kind of a fun thing to do. That'd be cool to put a link to a couple of those uh, channels in the show notes, Riley. I actually have a whole playlist that I've uh, created and saved. And I'll, I, I just, I've shared that with a number of other people. Because uh, there's actually, there's there's really like th- probably three different channels listed in that playlist. I think uh, there's one that's, probably the bulk of those videos, but there's a couple others that are included. So just give that playlist and people can, you know, have fun with that to their heart's content. The final thing would be uh, just, just having, you know, like a, almost like a workbench, if you will, or a table or, or a desk or something Uh, just, you know, and a lot of times I just have my equipment just set on the table there. Um, You know, just making it as easy as possible, uh, whether it is to, to swap out, gear or equipment or you know i'm switching from a barrel block to now my cool fire trainer or whatever and i like to just have you know so i'm not trying to like fumble things in my hands like i actually have a place for things and they get set on on that little table and uh it's easy you know easy to do what i need to do so a couple little i mean that 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 sounds pretty you know like yeah duh okay have a little you know table or bench or whatever but well i got one more you know, a couple, just give some thought to how you actually set yourself up. And again, the first thing I think is really key that I mentioned with putting it kind of right there in front of your face. Like every time I walk by, it's like, oh, there's my gun belt. You know, okay, let's do, do some, some dry practice. Yeah. Oh. I think another uh, really valuable one is a tripod with a, with a phone mount. Oh, yeah. You can go on YouTube or you can go on Amazon or wherever and you can buy any number of tripods. They don't have to be expensive. They, you can get some pretty low cost ones. Some of them come you know, pre built with some sort of mount that you can put a tablet or a phone in. I think this has a ton of value. But one, I think there's a lot of value to just turning on your camera and filming yourself. 
uh, and just being able to review the video and be like, oh, geez, that's what that looked like. No wonder I fumbled that one so bad. Or, you know, you know what does it look like when I press that trigger? Is, you know, and it, what's happening with my site picture? I don't know, whatever the thing might be. But there's also a number of tools that over time you might come to use, like Riley and I often do. We mentioned, of course, with the sponsor, one of our sponsors today's episode, Laser. Uh, but also, you know, you might use Mantis Laser Academy or you might use sure. – um, I don't know. You might have a shot timer app that you're running just to give you some some cues with a part time uh, that you might be running on a phone. Uh, you know, there's any number of things out there uh, that you might be doing, and so it, you know that gives you a quick access. You might prefer to run that on some sort of bigger tablet, so you have a bigger screen, so you can see easier, uh, or you might just pop your phone in there and you know hit hit record. I don't know, but I think a very low cost option to have a little tripod available to you in your dry fire dojo. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I know that's something that we mentioned in the Shooter Aid Challenge. Of course, you see us use a tripod all the time in Shooter Aid Challenge when we're setting up the LaserX software. Uh, and to your point about filming yourself, that is hugely, hugely beneficial so that you can actually watch yourself and self-analyze, self-diagnose. Uh, if you're just kind of doing the thing and you never you know, are able to see it from a third-party perspective, third person perspective uh you, you may very well feel like you're doing something the correct way but then you watch it and you're like oh i didn't know i was doing that i didn't know i had all this extra movement in my draw or whatever you know shrug, shrugging my shoulder or i'm dipping my head as i'm presenting the target whatever so very very valid suggestion you made there mm-hmm. no i think those are all pretty good uh, ideas for the dojo i think um, you need to you need to almost probably worth writing down, maybe even stick it on the wall if you have a dedicated space for it. But it's important to think about your routines, right? When I step into my training area, I will have done X, Y, Z. I will then do do this, um, and then I'll you know conduct my training. And when I'm when I'm done, this is how I will also finish. Having a clear um, <laughs> a clear defined finish, what you know to to the dry fire is just as important as having a clear and defined start a relative to safety and things. I had a customer tell me that he didn't realize for three or four days he was carrying around his, his carry gun with a barrel block in it. Uh, hmm. There's all sorts of things that went wrong with that. But but more, you know, there's other... There's That's other- not all that dissimilar from my own story, except that his is not fixable on the fly. <laughs> no, no, that's going to be a problem. Um, and I don't know why he never noticed that orange stick sticking out either. But, but anyway, um, I think... I think the, the point is um, another common pattern we see in the negligent discharges is what I'll call destruction and return. So very, very common. In fact, I'd say nine out of 10 uh, dry fire NDs come down to was conducting dry fire. Then thing happened that distracted me. Then I went back to conduct more dry fire and had an ND. So um, having a clear finish. Okay, I'm done now. And here's what I do when I'm done is is also very important. Yeah, no, you're spot on with that. Uh, it's like, you know, bookends to the practice session. At the beginning of that, you have all these procedures and safety guidelines or rules you're going to follow so that you begin your dry practice session safely. And then you, you got to have something on the opposite end of that, uh, whether it is to get back loaded we talked about the potential for uh, that not happening, but 
call it that one one last rep you know syndrome if you will where someone's like and this has absolutely happened where somebody just got done doing dry practice and so you're kind of in that mode of doing reps and you're like you know draw a gun and present and press trigger or whatever and uh, you get done with your practice session you load up back up and maybe you've gone about you know something for five ten minutes and you're like oh you Oh, let's do one more rep, you know, and, uh, you know, next thing you know, you're firing a a bullet through your wall. Uh, You got to clearly delineate that. Nope. Now the practice session is complete, is finished. My gun goes back into the holster uh, and it shall remain there. Like we are hot now. We're loaded. We are live. Uh, Practice is done. We're not touching that again. That is super, super important. So you don't end up having a one last rep syndrome, you know, negligent discharge. So watch for that and uh, begin and end with safety in mind. Absolutely. Yep. Have fun, guys. Dry fire is meant to be a good time. I know we talk about it a lot on our website. We talk a lot about it here on the podcast. Nick, it, you know, we sell a lot of products related to it. Um, we have barely scraped the surface on dry fire products. That was not the purpose of today's conversation. The point is, if you're not doing it, you should be doing it. And if you think it sounds boring or lame or like it's a chore, then you you, you need to figure that out. You need to figure out how to make it something you enjoy doing so that you have you know, natural built-in incentive to do it frequently and often. Absolutely. You know, as I mentioned earlier, if you want to get good at shooting your gun, handling your gun, defending yourself with a gun, uh, you need to practice those things and you need to practice them a lot. Uh, and it's not only the number of repetitions that you get that gets you good, uh, but it's also you want to stay good. And part of that is that you've done practice recently. So your ability to perform at a particular level, okay, whatever, wherever skill level you're at, your ability to actually deliver that when under pressure is going to depend on number of reps, but also how frequently you've had reps because that's that's how your brain works. Um, having things in short-term memory is, is really key um, as well as long-term memory. And so, yeah, dry practice. Do it a lot and do it often and regularly if you want to get maximum performance. And we know you do, or you wouldn't be here listening. And again, uh, thanks to our sponsors, which were laserapp.com, uh, barrelblock.com, and dryfireproshop.com, relative newcomer to the podcast as far as uh, sponsorship. And we thank you. And Jacob, uh, also thank you for your time today and doing this episode with me. Any fun? Yeah. And so until next time, a reminder to train right, train often, and train safe so you can fight hard, fight fast, and fight true. Take care.